Thanks for joining us today on Fraud Talk. I am Mandy Moody, the ACFE's content manager. And today I am talking to Dr. Alexander Wagner, the Associate Professor of Finance at the University of Zurich. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And you are speaking in March at our European Fraud Conference in Zurich, and we wanted to have a chance to talk to you and kind of get a preview into what you'd be talking about, but also talk about some other topics that you are doing research on right now. Sure. I'm looking forward to talking with you and to the event. So to begin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your role and how you began studying and researching corporate governance. My background's actually a little unusual for a finance professor. I come out of uh, economics and law studies originally, and I've always been interested in, in how organizations work, companies, small groups. Over time, that, be, that hobby or that sort of tendency to think about these things became my profession. So I started thinking more deeply about what's going on in organizations. And I mean, you just have to open the newspapers and you see stories of companies that do well and you see companies that basically go up in flames. Yeah. Often fraud is a, a core problem there. And so I, I started getting interested in what causes these, these differences. And my research tries to shed some light on these questions. Do you remember when you first got the itch to research these topics? One certain moment still sticks in my mind. I've not always been an academic, so I was working at uh, Lehman Brothers in London in 2002. And it was the summer of 2002 when several corporate scandals broke about uh, accounting fraud in, in a number of companies. And that really sent jitters throughout the markets, but also, more importantly, it raised the question, well, how can that be? I mean, it's not like these companies have no controls whatsoever. There have always been controls in place, and still this came out. So that was one instance. And then several years later, after I had arrived here in Zurich, the finance professor, when the issue between Swiss banks and especially the U.S. government, but also some other governments, came about, Swiss banks having helped with tax evasion slash tax fraud, mm-hmm. that again put the finger on how, how does this happen. So those are just two examples, but basically it's there every day. So tell us a little bit about some of the recent studies that you've conducted. I know you've done many different studies and you've spoken about many different ones, but what are some of the more recent ones that fraud examiners would, would be interested in? How can we tell or to which extent can we tell who and what kind of people will resist the temptation to you know, basically start defrauding others or start deceiving others, uh, and who will be easily swayed by, by any bad incentives that may be in place. So rather than just saying, okay, uh, there's a lot of fraud and let's see which companies have more than such fraud and that, I've, I've moved on to the individual level, really trying to explore a concept that my co-authors and I uh, here in Zurich, but also elsewhere, 
uh, have called so-called protected values for truthfulness. So a protected value is not just any value. It's a, it's a value where people are willing to pay a price to uphold that value. And so in recent both experimental but also empirical studies with students but also with managers, we've tried to test what kind of people actually resist temptations. We've developed a scale that one can use to measure these uh, resistance factors, so to speak. And so far, that's, of course, still fundamental research, and putting it into practice takes some further steps. But that's definitely one thing I've been spending a lot of time on. The second line of thought that I've pursued is how do observers of corporate behavior, how how do they form opinions about the trustworthiness of companies. Okay, so company A is behaving well and company B isn't behaving well, but how do investors, for example, actually form those opinions and how does it affect their decision making? So we have found, for example, that investors actually do care a lot about whether companies engage in earnings management. Even if it's legal, investors might worry that a company that engages in too much creative accounting might at some point pass the point where it's actually entering the realm of fraud. And so these investors become cautious about those companies even before getting to that point. Is this when investors are extremely knowledgeable? I would imagine that investors are so different. Some know what's going on and some don't. Yeah, absolutely right, Mandy. That's that's absolutely a key issue. Investors are different. It turns out that it really depends on the ability of investors to differentiate different kinds of behaviors. What matters for how stock prices develop is actually not, let's say, the average investor, but it's the so-called marginal investor. That sounds like an awfully technical concept, but it really just means that the last guy or the last entity that's trading the stock is actually mm-hmm. the one that's setting the price. And so if one thinks about these uh, last traders being informed traders, such as hedge funds, institutional investors, then it's actually not a big surprise that the market prices do reflect even quite sophisticated ways of analyzing companies. But your point is still excellent in the sense that for fraud to be held back and for, for you know, honorable behavior, let's put it like that, yeah. the grand fashion of behavior to, of, of, of companies to be promoted, transparency about what companies are doing is actually a very important uh, ingredient for markets. That is very interesting. <laughs> and we can, maybe that's a whole other podcast. But tell, you know, we were talking about topics for today, and you mentioned that one new place you were studying was what happens when companies give super challenging goals to management. And this leading to management having an incentive to use all means to, you know, even inappropriate ones to achieve goals. So tell me where this idea originated and, you know, where you are with it right now. So, so that's a, um, a very sort of deep idea that certainly isn't my invention. Uh, it goes back a long way in the study of, of incentives. Uh, one other way to put it is some companies are rewarding A and they're hoping for B. So they're rewarding one kind of uh, behavior and really they are hoping 
to create some other kind of behavior. Let me give you an example and also tie it back to the, the notion that inappropriate behavior might result. So some banks here in Switzerland, but also beyond, set goals for their private bankers to attract more so-called net new money, so assets under management, mm -hmm. uh, because they make margins on those uh, assets under management. So that's in principle a good thing. Now, if you incentivize somebody, uh, a private banker, a wealth manager, to attract more money into the bank, they will do that. Incentives do work. The problem is they might start attracting money, which isn't ideally uh, suited for to, uh, yeah. attracting the company. In other words, maybe they might also attract uh, money that's uh, coming from uh, certain businesses which you don't want to support and so on and so forth. So, and, th and that's a very realistic concern. I mean, that's in principle what has happened in, in, in Switzerland but also elsewhere with banks trying to push too strongly for certain uh, goals in reaching in, in uh, net new money growth. And the result is that bankers start attracting money, but maybe not the one that you want. Mm -hmm. What does it look like in the workplace when it shows up? Well, I think in, in academia, we have similar issues, right? I mean, we, we get, we have challenging goals in the sense of, you know, this term publish or perish, right? We need to publish well in, in top scientific journals. And what happens, and that's an everyday thing one can observe, is that there is a temptation to start fudging results in a, in a direction that may or uh, make it more likely that this gets published well. And so there are numerous cases of researchers uh, sometimes manipulating data, sometimes even inventing uh, results, and sometimes just not telling the whole truth about uh, their results. And the way it comes about is that on a daily life, you're sitting in front of the computer, you know that there are certain goals attached to your behavior, you know that there are incentives attached to those outcomes, and, and that creates a pressure to follow those incentives. So it's something that's not only happening on the top management level, it happens uh, throughout the organization. And so I think fraud examiners play a very important role, not only in uncovering those problems after after the fact, but also in supporting organizations in, in putting in place mechanisms to help people withstand those pressures. Anti-fraud work is not just trying to uncover it afterwards, but really thinking about do we have the right incentives in place. Yeah, and that leads me to my next question of how fraud examiners can use this when conducting their own fraud risk assessments. I'm really curious, by the way, to, to learn more about this as I also speak to some uh, fraud examiners before the conference and then at the conference. But I think one, one basic idea that one can use to, to analyze this is the fraud triangle. The opportunities, the incentives, and sort of the individual rationalization of behavior, when those three things come together, then it's, it's what becomes really important. And so and a company that wants to avoid such fraud has to do something on all those dimensions. Obviously, one can try to limit the opportunities. Um, modern technology helps uh, to some extent there. One can set the incentives in the right way and sort of really think about what are maybe unforeseen side consequences of rewarding A when one is actually hoping for B. And then third, 
uh, and that's a big theme of my own research, it's sometimes cheaper to think about getting the right people in place rather than fixing the organization or fixing the incentive system. Right? Mm. I mean, I, as an economist, of course, I believe in the power of incentives, but it, you know, to, to put it in an exaggerated way, it, it, it's an odd way of saying, well, let's have all opportunists in the, in the company and then let's try to incentivize them uh, to behave well. That can cost the company dearly. Another yeah. way to do it is to try to get the right people that fit with the company culture in the first place. Okay. And so one thing I'm trying to push in my research, and I'm, you know, that's an ongoing thing, is really trying to understand how can we take the insights that we have from laboratory studies, from many, many experimental studies that keep piling up, that people differ in their intrinsic values. How can we take those insights and make them actionable into tools for selecting the right people. I think we're on a good track. We aren't there yet, but that's certainly a direction which I want to see more. I imagine it would be worthwhile for companies to even go a little a step back and identify the culture they want. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, one, one tenet really gets a lot of traction now is there is not the single best practice in yeah. corporate governance, and there's also not the best corporate culture. However, there are differences in how conscious people are about the processes and, and their culture in their companies. And I think on, on that, I definitely subscribe to what you just said, the notion that taking a step back and, and thinking about what kind of culture do we want, what kind of people, therefore, do we need in this company, and do we have them in place that's really absolutely critical. Well, I don't want to go too far deep because I still want people to come to the conference and attend your session. <laughs> uh, but do you have a sneak peek or a topic that you'll be working on next or even what you will be discussing at the conference in Europe in March? I think I want to pursue a little bit further something I've recently started working on, which is the, the promises of some technologies uh, also in supporting the ethics in, in, inside a company. So by that, I mean, coming back again to the fraud triangle, you know, if you have a system in place which doesn't provide the opportunities, then you don't have to worry so much about fraudulent behavior. I recently gave a talk at Cade Ejecutivos, which is a large conference in in Peru about uh, corruption in Latin America, which is a fascinating topic and also fraudulent behavior there. And actually they are beginning to explore the promises of uh, blockchain technology, mm. uh, distributed ledger technology in monitoring behavior inside the company. Now there's an, a, a really fascinating dimension here, which is if you start monitoring behavior in, in a certain way, how do people actually respond to that? Is that it, this is not behavior neutral. There is going to be some response from people to this kind of, of actions. And so I want to think a little bit more about this in the next two months and then hopefully have some ideas to report on at the conference. The other thing which will come up is I've, I've arranged with the organizers that will be able to launch a brief survey to participants uh, or those who are invited to participate 
and that survey will hopefully be launched soon uh, about certain challenges and opportunities that are available in that industry, so I'll also be able uh, to reflect on those. Finally, as a third point, I'll talk about some uh, recent thoughts in the design of incentive systems. I've highlighted some problems with incentive systems before. Mm-hmm. I, of course, also have some thoughts on what you might actually do uh, to create a, a suitable incentive system. But that will have to wait for uh, the conference. That sounds, that sounds awesome. I really think uh, our attendees and our listeners will find this extremely valuable. I ask you a, a fun question for those people who are coming to Zurich, you know, maybe for the first time. What is something you would tell one of our attendees to make sure and do while they are in Zurich? I love food. So wherever <laughs> I, I, I go, uh, I definitely want to have, have the local uh, kind of dishes. And I have to warn all those who are vegetarians that there is not a long a tradition of Swiss vegetarian food. It tends to be meat-based, but there is, the, there is the oldest vegetarian restaurant in the world based in Zurich. And so, oh, so wow. that's, a, that's, that's, that's the other dimension. So having a Swiss uh, wheel, Zurich wheel, uh, is, is a, a delicacy here on the food side. You should definitely do. Um, the other thing, uh, given that it's in March, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, weather might be uh, quite nice. So uh, taking half a day to go up one of the hills around Zurich, around Zurich, where you then can see far into the mountains, is definitely worth doing. And then finally, I mean, Zurich is one of the big banking centers of the world. So just walking around in the old town, some of which goes back to the 12th century, and and seeing the old buildings and some of their uh, some of the banks in there. Uh, that's also pretty um, pretty amazing. Every time I have visitors, I like to do that with them. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. I definitely hope everybody who's coming out to our conference here uh, is going to enjoy themselves. It's, it's going to be nice. So yeah. I'm look for, looking forward to meeting many people. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Dr. Wagner will be at the upcoming ACFE Fraud Conference Europe, March 27th through 29th in Zurich. And thank you to Dr. Wagner and thank you to you all for listening today. This is Mandy Moody signing off until next month. And remember, you can find all of our podcasts on Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcasts.